1: Social media is a phenomenon that continues to grow and be the subject of much consternation, commentary, criticism, and scholarly research. Attempting to truly understand social media communication practices and tools requires interdisciplinary analysis and the examination of the technology from the varying perspectives of the groups of users, developers, and experts with respect to the issues surrounding it. It also should include and look at the changes social media has and continues to bring to various fields, particularly with respect to professional communication. Jeremy Lipshultz, Isaacson professor in the School of Communication at the University of Nebraska at Omaha and frequent blogger for the huffington post and chicago now is here on the show today to talk about the impact of social media on various mass communications professions many of which he discusses in his new book social media communication concepts practices data law and ethics welcome to the show jeremy thank you hello Great. So, what we usually like to do is start off with some of your background. How did you get to where you are? Isaacson Professor in the School of Communication at the University of Nebraska in Omaha, blogging for HuffPo. What's up with that?
0: When I was young, I started out in uh, radio and radio journalism, radio news in Illinois and Indiana. And then um, I. Went back to school, did a PhD at Southern Illinois University in a school of journalism. So I was very journalism focused uh, early in my career. And I came to Omaha in 1989. And it was just as things were getting very interesting with the internet. And the internet really changed my career, it really shifted me uh, away from my early interests in radio. Uh, toward what was happening online.
1: Great, great. So I see you online a lot because I I follow you on Twitter. Um, But maybe, and I'm just assuming here, so is it your interactions on Twitter and various other uh, social media sites like LinkedIn or Facebook that drove you to write this book? Well, I think you know I was working a lot on
0: uh, the web in the 1990s as this was developing, and our students were becoming very interested in the topic. We have a master's program in communication here at UNO, and so I was advising some theses that that cut into these issues. So I had an interest, and then um, I think when things really began to change for me was in about 2009 uh, I had joined Twitter uh, the year before but I hadn't done a lot with Twitter in that first year uh, mainly it was a lot of tech-oriented people here in the Omaha community that were interacting and we have an event here called Big Omaha that that draws people in uh, to kinda look at venture capital and startups and that kinda thing and in that same year in 2009 I attended uh, Edelman PR's uh, academic summit. Mm -hmm. And uh, they now do these about every two years. But in 2009, it was very interesting because Twitter was very active with uh, an uprising in Iran at the time. And I began to realize that um, something important was happening that hadn't happened before with a lot of this uh, media and technology. And the following year in 2010, we... Held a, a conference here on campus called Omaha 101010. 10, 10. And at Omaha 101010, 10, 10, we brought people to campus from uh, across the country physically, but also virtually. We used video conferencing uh, software as well. And we formed a social media team. We have a strong public relations firm, student run firm here. And so they formed a, a social media plan. And we had probably 400 people attend our three days of events on campus. Mm -hmm. When we went back and looked at the analytics for the event, the reach was about 96,000 across the world who had in some way or another encountered our, our content on Twitter. And so the light bulbs for me at that point really started going off in terms of, the, the influence that is spread through social media, the amplification of messages, the importance of trust and engagement, and a lot of the issues that I cover in the book.
1: Yeah. So you you mentioned the terms influence, trust, and engagement. And in part of your book, you said influence and trust are key concepts for social media. And I was wondering, okay, well, first of all, what do you mean by that? But secondly, is that different now for communications professions than perhaps they were, it was prior to perhaps the explosion in use of social media, but also just, you know, the use of the web in general. I
0: think it is, uh, you know, one of the things that, that we kick around a lot in just casual conversations is how would have 9-11 been different if Twitter and Facebook and Instagram had been where they are now, You know, how would that have changed uh, or altered the conversation? We had a mall shooting here several years ago, just right before these social media tools took off. And the same kind of thing, some of this communication was happening in text messages, but it wasn't so public as it is in a place like Twitter. So I, I think when communication becomes as public as it has become, and when privacy is... Altered because of this. Um, It it does change the nature of the communication. I think the other thing that you alluded to that is important is early on, a lot of the emphasis in the 1990s and even um, pre Twitter. Uh, had to do with what we would call academically computer-mediated communication. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the killer app, the original killer app was email. And how did email, you know, affect people in different ways? And and what were the issues with the, the richness or lack of richness in communication when you didn't see somebody face-to-face, for example? And, you know, we talk about their things like identity interaction, community, and, and how we study those areas. And those remain important, but I think what has changed in recent years is that previous professional definitions, those those old silos of journalism, public relations, advertising, marketing, etc., have all begun to blend and overlap in ways that are very interesting. Mm-hmm.
1: I was, you know, one of my questions I had for you is Have the professions been redefined? I mean, because if we think about it um, on Twitter, for example, a lot of the uh, journalists are using Twitter to engage the audience, right? Tweeting out their uh, story links or links to their stories and just comments on various things that are happening right now or currently. And you think about it, but that usually. Used to be kind of a, a job for a public relations person, right? Or a community relations person to do that kind of activity. So I'm wondering about the blurring of the lines, the redefining of the profession, and how, actually, as a, a professor in a communication school, what that means for you in teaching students about this. Absolutely, it's changed.
0: I think, I mean, I came out of an era in the 1980s when I was a radio news director where anything that that crossed the line over into advertising or PR or marketing was frowned upon, right? Right. So we're very much past that place with with the profession of journalism. And, you know, to the point where not only are journalists encouraged to drive traffic to their websites – what I think is coming uh, around the corner is what some people have talked about at places like Forbes, where there's an emphasis now on native advertising. Is that journalists might even be paid not uh, with a standard check, but based on the performance of the content that they they generate. So that's a very different uh, game to play in a sense. So you have all of those factors going on, and then you know some of the things that I've talked about in the book are. You know, what do you do about live tweeting as an event is unfolding? And we saw that recently with the shootings in the St. Louis area mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the, the inability in some cases to verify information, uh, the challenges related to that, and the, the fact that uh, when events such as this unfold, People with political agendas will engage in the conversation and try to influence the conversation through what we would have traditionally called propaganda, mm-hmm. um, if not persuasion. And so, I, you know, I think, I think all of that has an impact on journalism because it is more of a commercial pressure. Uh, and I think in, even in the training, the lines are blurred. Uh, even in the classroom, uh, we are uh, crossing those traditional boundaries and students are less likely to be in a uh, an isolated public relations class, for example. They're, they're more likely to be interacting throughout a curriculum with people who plan to go and work in newspapers or television news or radio news.
1: Sure.
0: And then you throw marketing into the mix and it's sort of a free-for-all because marketing is is the largest of these industries in terms of revenues, but it's also the most diverse in terms of um, the, the the best practices versus things that we might conclude are unethical behavior. And there's a there's a wide spectrum there, so I think it challenges everybody in this competitive marketplace to do the right thing, to to have good business practices, but also be successful.
1: Mm-hmm. So Convergence is no longer just uh, print and, <laughs> and audio or video. It's it's Convergence is uh, the money and the the editorial mixing together, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, you throw on top of
0: this, everything since the fall of 2008 has been influenced by some rather severe economic pressures mm-hmm. and downsizing in many of these workforces and new growth industries uh, emerging from that. And so the industries look quite different than they did before all of this.
1: Now, we're talking about how uh, social media has influenced the change in media and also education for students going into those various professions. How has social media changed communication behavior? Communication
0: behavior? Yes, yes. Well, it's an interesting question that you ask. I just happened to be on another campus over the weekend, um, and I I don't normally spend much time in dorms, uh, but I happen to find myself on a dorm floor with a friend of our our, our son, and uh, we talked about this a little bit. That you know, the the generation growing up is is always connected now. Mm-hmm whether it's through Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever the case might be, it, it's, it's different than uh, when you and I were, were potentially um, uh, experiencing that part of our lives. And so I, mean, I, I think what's different is that uh, people uh, don't handle silence well. Mm-hmm. They don't handle downtime and times for reflection very well. And I think that has an impact on face-to-face communication. And, you know, it's the old uh, item that a lot of people have already talked about, which is when you go out to dinner, can everybody leave their phones in, in their pockets and purses long enough to have a nice dinner and a nice conversation? It, it's really difficult to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So with the, the influx of all this information from various sources, from your mobile phone, from, you know, televisions in various different places and, and sounds and sites, but particularly from social media, how are you finding or in your research people able to sort through all of the mass of information um, to get to either the stuff that they find has the most integrity or that is just basically true. Um, and how, are, and how are people doing that and how well are they doing in that? Well I think in many cases the software
0: applications are beginning to do this for us because we haven't done it very well. Mm-hmm. And although Facebook has taken some criticism for filtering messages on the news feed, the fact probably remains for a lot of people, if, if they saw every single post on their newsfeed, they'd be overwhelmed. Mm-hmm because of the amount of it. Uh, even with the filtering, I get overwhelmed with the amount of posts, particularly on a, on a weekend where, where something is going on. So I think that's happening at that level. Uh, I've been looking at mobile radio news recently and have a blog post in the works on this. Um, you know, in that industry, the apps are working to learn from what we like and uh, also doing some filtering uh, that... that leads us to not see the same stories or hear the same stories again uh, but also to, to learn our preferences our interests and, and that there might be a good aspect to that and like everything on the internet it's paradoxical the bad side is that we may in the long run have less common civic knowledge as a, as a public and so you know if we're filtering based on who we are you know how do we cross those bridges and talk to each other, talk to people who are different than us if if we're seeing different media content? I think that's the bigger long-term issue that that is yet to be addressed. And I, And you know you see that with with what happened in Ferguson, where the polling data still shows, for example, the, the racial divides across the country sure. on how people see essentially the same event. they see it quite differently. So I think that's, that's a worry long-term is that we lose cohesion because of, uh, of this. You know, the, the hope going into computer-mediated communication in the 1990s was that we would build these online communities and we'd straight, strengthen our sense of, of, of commonality with our fellow people. But if, if all we do is sort of go off into a corner with people who think like us, mm-hmm. that maybe doesn't advance us as a society much.
1: Sure. Now, you're starting to talk about something I wanted to ask you about as well with respect to the book, and that is theory, right? Our theories that we associate with technology, with communication and information, and you do have a whole chapter on theory. So uses and gratifications, diffusion of information, all these other theories. How are you seeing those theories actually play out? On social media and the various social media. So, obviously, Facebook is different from Twitter, or at least for right now it is, although Twitter is creeping towards Facebook a lot. But it's different from G and different from LinkedIn. How are those different theories playing themselves out on this new media?
0: Well, theory is important. Academics like to <laughs> rely upon theory. For a variety of reasons, but it clarifies our definitions sure. of the concepts., uh, so it clarifies what we're talking about. But the thing that theory does uh, when it's when it's helpful is that that it gives us a longer term view of what what we're observing. So we're making these observations, and if we make them without theory in the absence of theory, it's really difficult to interpret what we're seeing. we can conjecture about that, but the theory really gives us direction to to interpret and and you know ultimately move beyond description to predicting where where uh, the social world is headed and mm-hmm. and what we can expect there so yeah I have looked at at some theories and, and certain theories I remember as a graduate student in the 1980s the late 1980s there were theories that we're almost dying on the vine that, that have really had a resurgence because of, of social media. I mean, diffusion had been around for a long time when social media came along. Uh, but, it, you know, it gives us a sense of how people adopt new technologies and then from that how people adopt new ideas um, and that there is a pattern to this adoption and that, you um, it allows us to do things like compare what's happening between face to face communication and other mediated forms of communication and the, the impact of that. Uh, going way, way back, uh, the communication discipline, you know, had something called the two-step flow of communication. Later, the multi-step flow of communication. But if you go back to the 1950s and that research, it was really about influence, as we were talking about earlier. It was really about how personal influence and and, and persuasion function in a society. Mm-hmm. Originally, those studies were were based on a geographic community. But what online has done is created these online communities where 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 influence and communication is exchanged. Uh, and so you see an event that unfolds, and interpretation of that event might be rather ambiguous about how how to discern what you 're seeing and hearing mm-hmm. and You might look to trusted sources, people who you 've talked to before, to see what they 're saying that so those opinion leaders are still important, but they tend to be online, influencing much larger groups of people. Uh, What I think is really uh, fundamentally different uh, in the social media era is that in the traditional media era, you know, you had your personal social network of friends and family, uh, social groups in your community, and then you had the the media stars out there, the people that the country looked to, the politicians, the celebrities, uh, those type of folk as opinion leaders. Now anybody with a following on Twitter (laughs) – um, can exercise that influence. And so the gatekeeping is much weaker than it was in the traditional media era. And so it does open the landscape to a broader range of influencers, I think. It extends our sphere of influence potentially to a much wider group of people. Um, but it, it, it does run the risk of, of kind of filtering out the people who don't think like us. And so in that way... Um, it is both broadening and narrowing. So, I, you know, I come back to that word paradox, which I played with uh, in a book I did many years ago called Free Expression in the Age of the Internet, mm-hmm. where we were already
1: talking about these concepts. Now you talked about the idea of gatekeeping, which is a traditional, you know, you'll hear it in every mass com theory <laughs> course that you get. Is gatekeeping uh, no longer a function of the, you know, People think of gatekeepers as the institutional press. Are people now on their own with the gatekeeping? I know we talked about just a second ago about filtering with, uh, you know, some of the platforms—Facebook, um, Twitter—now open, actually opening the floodgates with putting people on your timeline that you're not following anymore, right? So, is gatepe- gatekeeping now the purview of say regular people and not institutions?
0: Well, I, you know it depends what your feed looks like i 've followed at sometimes over two thousand yeah. accounts on twitter i 'm back under two thousand I think but I'm, but you know after Ferguson, I think i 'm close to two thousand again uh, I've, i mean i 've always seen um, tweets from people I follow retweeting something.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So they've been on the feed for a long time, but yeah, I do think that you know Facebook wants to grow, Twitter wants to grow, and so they're suggesting, they're always suggesting people that you might follow. Uh, at the same time, there really is a limit to to what what you can follow and who you can follow, and before the feed becomes unmanageable. And I mean that's that's why Facebook's answer is to to filter pretty severely back down to what they think you want. Mm-hmm. So theirs is a study of. We think we know what Jeremy wants to see, and we'll try to give him that. Twitter um, is still sort of at the phase of trying to encourage people to add follows. Um, But some of us already follow too many people, I think. (laughs) So it's a challenge. I do think you have to curate your feed as a user and, and really think about whether something is noise or signal. And that takes us back to traditional communication theory, too, right, which was kind of schematic engineering signal-to-noise ratio. As the noise increases, the signal gets lost in that noise, and and that's what happens on a Twitter feed uh, when things are very active. But um, these these applications don't make it as easy to to go through and, you know, unfollow uh, as it is to just click that follow button. So you, you really have to either use some software that helps you do that or you got to spend some time uh, managing your feed. But it's one of those things that I think is we haven't really developed great norms, social norms that that help us with, with how to go about this. And there's a lot of trial and error, I find. I don't know if you find that as well.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, one of the things you say in the book is that social media involves human storytelling. So um, I was wondering if you could just discuss that. And does that make social media any different from traditional media? Or is that one of the things that makes it at least good social media and good traditional media or influential or persuasive media? Is that what makes it very similar to every kind of old media? I think so. Uh,
0: we, we've we been engaged here on my campus for the last five years in a rather dramatic, significant curriculum revision to try to respond to everything that's happening and rework our academic programs in journalism uh, and public relations and advertising. And as we had guests on campus who were experts in digital and social and as we held hour after hour of faculty meetings to debate and discuss these issues, we kept coming back to the idea of storytelling as foundational, as fundamental to what we do in communication. And what that led us to do in our curriculum was we created two media storytelling classes that everybody has to take, Mm -hmm. Storytelling 1 and Storytelling 2, and they come after our introductory courses and after our first writing course, because we really came to understand that for our students to go out and have successful internships and be successful as professionals, they're going to have to uh, be uh, great storytellers. And so, in that regard, yeah, nothing has changed from 25 years ago when I became a professor. That was true then. Mm-hmm. But in another sense, I think it has changed because of the nature of storytelling itself. I mean, you look at a site such as Upworthy and the way that they, you know, manage headlines and, you know, what some people call clickbait, <laughs> the, way, the way that we are storytelling within some of these uh, sites has changed and continues to evolve. Um, you know, something becomes popular and everybody does it, right? Mm-hmm. So you had you know, the ice bucket challenge right. is a good right. example of something going viral and everybody is jumping on board, right? And if you don't, you feel like, gosh, maybe I should have or something. <laughs> so, you know, in a sense, there's a lot of peer pressure uh, that, that comes to bear in social media uh, when it's, when it's effective in this way. Uh, so I do think storytelling is 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 an important element. Um, a friend of mine who manages a media monitoring company, he's mentioned in the book, Todd Murphy, has a hashtag that he's used sometimes on Twitter that's called Same Rules, New Tools. Mm. And we had a debate about this over the course of several years because – you know, he was convinced that the rules haven't changed at all, and that really all that's changed is the the media platforms. And I kept saying, I'm not so sure, Todd, let's, let's see how this plays out. Um, And and it's, it's clear that some of the storytelling rules hold. Uh, The the parts of a story, a narrative, uh, the way a story is told, still hold today. But I do think that, You know, because of the way that that content spreads across the social net, some of the rules have changed about that as well. I mean, certainly, I mean, we've known this before social media. From when I first went to graduate school, uh, the average uh, length of a soundbite on television news was about 43 seconds. Uh, The last time I heard a research study on it, it was about six seconds. Mm. So, you know, people want things fast. They don't want to spend a lot of time on it. Um, And so stories are told, um, you know, with brevity, with conciseness. They have to attract attention in this noisy social environment right so the length of a vine is about all. (laughs) yeah so that six seconds seems to be (laughs) what what people are are angling toward and so i think there is a worry there and and it does have an impact on what the rules are because you know there's no way that you can be as coherent uh and and as thoughtful in six seconds as we can in a half hour interview right Um, you know the context is altered, um, and so things get decontextualized uh, oftentimes, and and that can lead to confusion. That can lead to uh, people jumping prematurely to conclusions. So those are those are problems with the storytelling.
1: You know, one of the quotes that you had at the beginning of one of the chapters in your book was from someone that said that Twitter, and, I, and I'm sure this goes to almost every social media where you post a status or, or something like that, that Twitter is basically a visualization of our inner selves, right? So I wanted to ask you about relationship formation and the importance of relationship formation um, that we see or visualize using social media and the importance of that social media has been for relationship formation that's important for the various professions that you discuss in the book. So you have journalism, you have advertising, PR and marketing. So you visualize those different relationships that students, you know, we, they hear about that are important, Mm -hmm. but now they actually get to see them in action. Right. Yeah.
0: And we've just launched um, in May, the UNO Social Media Lab and our brand new Community Engagement Center, we're working with nonprofits who have a lot of interest in having uh, their uh, social networks um, connected in, in a stronger way. And so the visualization is an important piece to this. Uh, we've been working with a variety of, of social media measurement platforms, but one that relates to your question, I think, quite clearly is is an open source project called NodeXL. And the Social Media Research Foundation and Mark Smith have done some really interesting work uh, in this area. And, you know, it does create a visualization of what a social network looks like uh, on a Twitter conversation. And I think one way to think about it, it in a visual sense is, so we're having this conversation and it's back and forth. If we were doing it, on Twitter, in a sense, we're coming closer together in social space. Mm-hmm. But we, but what's different in social media is that people around us are watching this conversation unfold. Everything is very public. Right. Um, and so there might be a crowd that gathers around this conversation. It's as if we were out on the sidewalk downtown uh, having a very, you know, extensive uh, elaborate conversation about an important social issue, and people start to engage with us. People want to be part of that conversation. Well, we can visualize that with these social networks, and and look at um, the inclusion or exclusion of people within that network, uh, the degree to which it is you know really comprised of public and or private people, the the interests of those people, the places that they work the uh, content that they tweet in a given day, the links that they send people to. All of those things, I think, are important uh, elements that, that we learn from looking at those visualizations um, because they are very public and available. But I do think it does feed back, going back to theory, it feeds back into uh, our deeper understanding of what a social network really is about and this, this, there's some theory related to social network analysis that dates back decades as well, right. you know, that started in places like, you know, what happens in a classroom when we put a group of five students together uh, and another group over here of four students? Uh, you know, what does that conversation look like?
1: Right. Well,
0: uh, you know, we can sort of see this also unfold. You know in a social media setting as well, and so the fact that it is public and it is something that we can visualize lends uh, um, some ability to to begin to understand um, what what's really going on in these conversations and you know what we can learn from a communication perspective when it when it goes well and it's productive mm-hmm. Uh, and at the same time, when people are flaming each other and it's very destructive to social unity, what's, what's happening there? Who are the agitators of that conversation? What photographs or other rich media, you know, generate that spark? And so I think, I think you're going to see a lot more interest in this going forward.
1: Mm-hmm. So the book is Social Media Communication, Concepts, Practices, Data, Law, and Ethics. What do you hope that your readers take away from the book?
0: The, you know, if, if you step back and, and you look at kind of what's the larger argument behind this book, uh, I'm, and I think you, you've tapped into it in some of your earlier uh, questions, I'm making uh, an argument that what I have labeled social media communication is a distinct form of communication that both um, is informed by our earlier understanding of communication theory methods observations and, and the like practices, but it also is distinct in its own in its own way and and going forward, we have to give special attention to it as a different form of communication um, a, a really good example I think is when we talk to students and I talk to some incoming students this summer that were in orientation about, you know, how they handle their personal brand uh, and what they're doing in social media and what employers are looking at when they interview you later for an internship or a job and how that can knock you out of the job you want. If, if the way you're presenting yourself in social media is quite different from the way you try to present yourself in an interview that people then do have a trust issue, for example, and say, well, I might not care about that post on social media, but if it looks like this person is really presenting themselves quite differently in this interview, then I start to wonder what else is different that I don't know about, and they don't want to hire that person. Mm-hmm. So we talk about personal brand and and the data that are out there, such as even the location of a tweet if they don't set their privacy setting. Uh, and you know and who they're interacting with and those kinds of things. And so it is a special form of communication that requires uh, a new set of practices that, that, that professionals need to, to, to use. But also really every consumer should know these things about social media because, you know, as you, as you notice at the end of the book, um, we get to, you know, what are the legal cases that are popping up uh, because when it goes wrong, basically, right. Uh, what are the ethical concerns that we should all have as communicators? And then what, you know, what about media literacy? What, what should we know that we might not know, uh, when we operate in these spaces? Um, because, you know, one of the strategies you might be tempted to exercise, well, I'm just not going to go on social media. I'm not going to have any of these accounts. I'm going to, uh, not do any of it because it's too dangerous and all these problems with it um, but then you really isolate yourself from this vibrant conversation so you know is there a way to to understand to become uh you know literate in in a social media sense uh, and then develop practices that that put you in a better place um, and it's not always easy we were working on a a story that's going to be in our local media this afternoon at five o'clock on one of our TV stations. There's a young woman who uh, is uh, trying to become a model. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, she put a profile photo on Facebook, which, you know, profile and cover photos remain public uh, because of the Facebook terms of service. And she's, Somebody has lifted that photo and is using it in an advertisement, and she doesn't even know who this person is, and Facebook won't tell her, uh, you know, who it is. And she went to Facebook and said they shouldn't, you know, can you take that down? And they said, no, we won't do that. These are our terms of service. Uh, she went to the local police department, and they said that's not. There's nothing criminal here. We can't deal with it. You might file a civil suit, and, you know, and it, so it becomes very difficult. Uh, sometimes, you know, for people to respond what's happening in these spaces. And it's not always ethical practices. In fact, a lot of times it's not what we would, you know, looking at codes of ethics for professionals, like PR professionals, we, we would say that's not, you know, really an ethical best practice. Uh, we might even look at the law and say, you know, in in, in most settings, using somebody's image that they have a legal right to protect the commercial purposes of that. But what's happened, you know, beginning with the internet and now even extending with social media is that these, these, these old rules are being eroded. Mm -hmm. They're being blurred. And, you know, it none of this has been going on long enough that we're getting enough case law to, to really begin to define what are the new rules, you know, at a legal, ethical uh, sense. You know, people are, are in the middle of developing these social media policies that I talk about in the book. Mm-hmm. And that also is very much in play. I just saw an item the other day that uh, at Northern Illinois University, undergraduates, you probably saw this, undergraduates who are logging on from their dorms all of a sudden get a pop-up that's, that says, you know, this might have crossed our, you know, boundaries uh, of, you know, offensiveness, what you're about to look at and go ahead, but we monitor these things and and there could be, you know, ramifications. So there, there's kind of a chilling effect there if you see sure. something like that pop up on your screen. Um, but but it, it's, it's a very challenging time, I think, for organizations to determine, you know, how much guidance – what is the appropriate amount of guidance uh, students, employees, others should be given? Uh, how much we need formal policy or not? And then, you know, what happens when it's somebody's, uh, you know, formal job responsibility? For example, be a social media site manager and it's their job to to, to be in these spaces. How, how do we... Uh, Create policies that work for them, without severely restricting uh, our desire to maintain a value in free speech, free expression, mm-hmm. uh, maintaining the values of the First Amendment that we have in this country. So, you know, from a from an academic standpoint, it's it's a great time to be studying these issues. Uh, it makes our conversations, our discussion in class, very electric. Sure, because students understand the stakes i think when we begin to explain these things uh and it's it's you know we we cover history but we bring it forward to you know what's happening now and why going forward in your life and your career this is going to be important Mm
1: -hmm. so what's next for you so you have this book you just published it it's out now available amazon from the publisher everywhere what's next for you well, in the short term, I have computer-mediated
0: communication <laughs> class tomorrow, and uh, social media metrics on Thursday. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a measurement week coming up uh, in September uh, that we are coordinating. So we're focusing the community on, you know, kind of the future of of measurement and social media and what the issues are and and why they should be interested in it. And you know, there's been some attention with the NSA story sure. and all of that to to concerns about big data and privacy, and so we want to talk about those things. But in the research sense, um, this book left me wanting to do much more in the area of disclosure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the regulatory body in our country that has tried to address this is the Federal Trade Commission, but uh, it, it happens kind of at the guidelines level, um, and there's... You know, uh, it's, it's not um, a very well-formed uh, set of practices, if you will, um, but it's, it's some guidelines. And uh, there are some very uh, significant issues with disclosure in social media. Uh, I attended, uh, while I was researching this book last fall and I was on leave, I attended Social Media Week events in Chicago, and there was a particular panel Uh, organized by uh, Professor David Kamer at Loyola Mm -hmm. University in Chicago uh, with professionals uh, addressing this issue. And I I became very interested. Um, I I touch on some of these things in in this book, but I think there's much more that needs to be talked about there and researched. And so I'm beginning to really closely examine, for example, uh, celebrities. Celebrities uh, and celebrity endorsement. Um, There's a real problem out there right now with celebrities making thousands of dollars for tweeting an endorsement that they have a financial interest in and not disclosing that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's a a real serious issue going forward. Um, People tweeting about interests of their clients, so they're getting paid to represent someone, but it's not very clear from the social media communication that they have this relationship So I think, you know, coming back to what we talked about at the beginning of this interview, trust, um, you know, we have to have some rules of the road uh, for how that happens and how we come to trust this broader array of communicators um, than we had in the, the more the era of gatekeeping when our media did some of that vetting for us.
1: Great. That sounds very interesting. We'll be looking forward to reading more from you. So the book is Social Media Communication, Concepts, Practices, Data, Law, and Ethics. People go out and get the book, read it. And we thank Professor Lipschultz for being on the show today.
0: Thank you very much. It's been a terrific conversation. Enjoyed doing it.
1: All right. So this has been New Books in Technology. And thank you and have a good week. (laughs) I'm <laughs> sorry.